you'll turn to 1 Peter. We're in a study of 1 Peter that we're calling weird, and we're calling it weird because uh, that word there uh, in its root, it means of supernatural origin. There ought to be, as believers, our lives, there ought to be a supernatural element. There ought to be something about our lives that is weird, that can only be uh, attested, that can only be sourced in the Lord. And Peter has been offering up uh, these identities, how believers see themselves, beginning in chapter 2, and we've been looking at those, and all of these are rooted in the gospel of God transferring, of God through Christ forgiving our sins and that, that separated us from God and transferring us out of a domain of darkness into the kingdom of His marvelous and glorious light. And, and you know, we, we've been looking at these identities. Peter is very strong on us seeing ourselves rightly, so that we understand not only who we are in Christ, but so that we would understand the responsibility that goes with every one of those identities. We, we've seen each one that there is an identity and there is a responsibility that comes with that identity. And again, Peter is writing to Christians who were suffering for being a believer. They were suffering strictly because of their, their following, their allegiance to Christ. And what he gives them to nourish their souls, what he gives them to encourage them, what he gives them to persevere is an identity. He reminds them of an identity. He reminds them of not only who they are, but he reminds them of whose they are. And, and again, he is using these identities to nourish their souls, to open up their eyes to what it means to be a believer, to open up their eyes to God's grace, to open up their eyes to what it means to be in the family, the people, as we'll see today, of God, the, that those who were not once the people of God now are the people of God, to open their eyes to that, to, to realize that. To, to realize, even we said it a few weeks ago, not only an individual identity, but a corporate identity. And my, my fear is not only for myself, but for all of us, I think the, the great danger, the, the fear, the temptation, the tendency, if you will, for us is to underestimate, to underestimate what it means to bear the title child of God. To, to underestimate what it means to bear the title corporately that we are the people of God. To, to have a, a view of the church that is far too small. Far too small. Far, far too insignificant. To, to discount the, the glory and the wonder of us gathering here even today corporately and together worshiping our great God and Savior. To discount that. To, 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 total, to make what we do less about God and more about ourselves. I, that's the great tendency. And if I ask you even today, why, why do you go to church? Why are you here today? How would you answer that? For, for some, uh, if we polled people, why do you go to church? Some, it's out of tradition, it's out of routine, that's the way they were raised, that's just what you do on Sundays. For some, it, when you ask them, why do you go to church, they, they go for their kids, so that they want their kids to be raised right. They want the, it's for their kids. Not, not that they need truth, their kids need truth. 
For some, so for some it's, it's, a, it's a weekly pep talk. Just to get that push to start the week off right and get you going, and then on Wednesday you get this other. That's for some. These are statistically speaking, when people are interviewed, believers are interviewed, these are the answers they give. For some, it's because of relationships that you have with other people here. Statistically speaking, when Christians are surveyed, those, those tend to be the main, some of the main answers given as to why are you here today. And think with me for a minute. Who, who is the center of all those questions, all those answers? Who, does this, who is at the center of all those answers? Self. Self. You, you, look at, you look at all the research, all the, all the interviews with, with so-called believers in that, the, 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 the great danger for all of us in our attitudes towards church is to adopt a consumeristic mindset. We become consumers. We, we, find, we, we find the place that has the, the best programs, the best this, the best that, the best that, to serve us. That, that's the great danger. And, and what I mean by that is, the danger in that is we adopt a far too small view of our gatherings. It's too small. We don't understand collectively and corporately what is going on and what God is doing and what God is showing to the world when we gather here today corporately to worship our great God. We fail to understand what the picture of that is. And, and, and who do you think of, who do you think of first and foremost when you think about your gathering here? Wh- who is behind it? And, and think about this, I, I hear it, and, and don't, don't raise your hand if you ever said this, because Karen will tell you I'm a people pleaser. These kind of things take my elevator to ground zero instantly. I, I'm, that's one of the many things God is doing in my life more of a god confidence and a, and, a, and less of a self and all that stuff but you think about when people walk out and say you know what i didn't get anything out of that today could be the pastor's fault but that could be indicative of your heart as well that's not always the pastor's fault because at the end of the day it really wasn't about you it really wasn't about me It's about us setting aside everything else and coming together to corporately, to publicly and corporately and together pledge our allegiance to our great God. To to encourage one another. To be an encouragement to somebody else. You know, Hebrews 10, again, it says, Do not forsake the assembling together as a habit of such, but encourage one another. Part of our gathering is is to encourage one another. And again, we, we tend to have consumeristic mindsets. And, and Peter, is, Peter is writing, and, and I'm trying to do the best I can to expose what he's writing, but to understand who we are as believers, to understand a, an identity, but, but also understand what the church is called to be in this world, to give us a big view of church, of these gatherings, to give us a big view of who we are as the people of God. 
I mean, I think about it even on this Memorial Day weekend. We, we here at Odessa are a military outpost of the kingdom of God. Understand that. We're, we're literally, I mean, if you wanted to use military, we literally are an embassy of sorts. What is an embassy? An embassy is a small little community in a foreign country that represents a total different nation. But it's in enemy territory. Understand that's, that's who we are in a sense. This is a gathering of this is a gathering of believers, of fellow citizens, of fellow foreigners whose citizenship is of a foreign land, and we gather weekly to celebrate, to encourage one another, to hang in there, to, to fight the culture, to fight, to fight these things, to press on in the in the advance of the gospel, to press on in, in glorifying our king. We're the people of God. It goes so much deeper than just you and me individually. And we saw that, we began to see that last week, that we were believer, believer priests and that you and I are small stones, that Christ is the big stone, he's the, he's the cornerstone, and we're being built up together into the temple of God. But, but we saw that, we saw that again, that, that in that sense that God has really made Christianity persecution-proof. That no matter where we are, no matter what we're going through, no matter what we're battling, no matter how the enemy is, 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 is taking away our buildings, they may be taking away our homes, and yet we can still worship. Why? Because you and I individually are the temple of God. Corporately, we're the temple of God. So no matter what... If you're Paul in a prison cell, or there, there are people together to, worshiping our great God in, in, in basements today under the fear of persecution and being overtaken, and yet God is with them, and they can worship. They don't need a temple. They don't need a special place. They don't need to come to one spot. They can worship. Have a big view of who you are in Christ. Have a big view of our gathering. I mean, this is a picture of the glory of God that in the midst of a foreign world, God is gathering a people unto himself. Look around you. God is gathering a people unto himself in a foreign place. Gathering a people whose allegiance, look out there, watch out. That's what he thinks about my sermon right there. Now he's having a little trouble up here, that's all right. I'm easily distracted, sorry. Listen, my point is this, the church is not accidental. The, the church is not incidental either to the plan of God. It's not accidental, it's not incidental. It is central. Our gatherings, our worship, what we do corporately together is essential. He, he's not given us membership and participation in the church and the people of God in order to fit our plans and priorities. Rather, we've been invited in to do His will. To fight on behalf of him. He's graciously, as we've seen today, invited you and I to be a part of his people in order to enjoy the privilege of not only serving him, but furthering his plans. See, see your life that way. See your life as part of a bigger picture as a believer of furthering the plan of God and the people of God, not just about you and me. All of us, every single one of us in here, if we're honest with ourselves, we, we are very prone to falling into a consumeristic mindset because that's the way we are about everything else. 
We pick the, the, the schools based on self, the neighborhoods based on self, the, the rest, everything else. Is, and yet when it comes to church, we bring all that, we bring all that culture if we're not careful. It's, not, it's, it's more than that. It's about so much more than that. And we, we come in here and we're, we're participants instead of contributors. That's the mentality. All, all the pressure is put on, on me and the teachers and the, the children's leaders and all that to impress you and to put on a good show in order to keep you. That's not the way church was meant to be. It doesn't revolve around the personality behind this pulpit. It revolves around the Savior that unites all of us who are in Christ. Christ. He's the cornerstone. This thing is built up on Him. We come each week to have the Word exposed to us, to, to, to have the Word do its work in our lives, to, to x-ray our lives, if you will, to grow us up, to expose sin, to, to build us up. For the purpose of exactly what Peter says here in verse 9, so that you and I, as the people of God, would declare the excellencies of the God who called us before a watching world. Our lives are to declare, that's the main point, our lives as the people of God are to declare the awesomeness, the excellencies. That word we'll see it in a minute, it means the mighty power. Think about that. Does your life show off power of God, the power of God? Are people amazed at how awesome your God is that you can go through what you go through, endure what you endure, that you can have joy in any awesome? That's the power of God before a watching world. The, the identity, we've said it each week, the identity today, believers are the people of God. And again, it's a corporate, a corporate identity. Together we are the people of God of God. We're his family. And the responsibility that comes with that is to make known God's excellencies. Make known. Look at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Listen, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see the change? You were not born into the people of God. You're not the people of God because you're in America. You're not the people of God because your, your parents were ra raised you in the church. You're, not, you're the people of God if you have confessed your sinfulness and your, confessed your loyalty and your allegiance, your total allegiance to Christ. Christ is the cornerstone. All the mercy, all the forgiveness, all, of God, all those things come to you through Christ. Not, not your ethnicity, not your nationality, none of that stuff. It comes through Christ. It comes through, as Peter says, being born again. That word born again means literally born from above. God is offering you a new birth, death to self, a new life to Christ. 
If anyone is in Christ, he says he is a new creation. New creation. He talked about in chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, like newborn babies. Transferred out of the king, out of the domain of darkness, ruled by Satan. Transferred into the marvelous kingdom of light, ruled by Christ. So just a couple of points here to, to help us understand this passage. And you see the first one in verse 9. Believers must recognize the great privilege they have as the people of God through the gospel. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. What Peter does here is huge. He takes all, he takes all of the Old Testament descriptions for Israel, all the ways that Israel, the people of God, you can go back to Deuteronomy 7 and it shows how God chose Israel out of all the nations. He chose Israel. He chose to make a great nation out of Abraham. He takes all those declarations that were placed upon Israel and he places them now upon New Testament believers. He places them upon the church. And he's saying that you and I today now enjoy the privilege of being the people of God. You, you go to Romans, we've been grafted in, we've been adopted in to the people of God. In just a moment, uh, in the coming weeks, he'll dig into the cost of being a follower, and, and to some degree he's already done that, but here he's focusing on the privilege. You're the people of God. You who were separated due to your sin, alienated to be God because of your sin. Ephesians 2, children of wrath do your sin. Now he has adopted you into his people. Think about that. And you can go to, we won't go there, but Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 and 8, you see, it, you see the titles given. I'm going to go to Exodus 19 just for one. Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. Listen to, listen to how these passages parallel. Now when, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples of all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. All Deuteronomy, the same thing, he says. In Isaiah 43, verses 20 and 21, same titles. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for my own possession. You and I, the, the, the astounding idea that you and I as non-Jews are now in the people of God. That was an astounding claim. And Jesus made that claim over and over again. He says in John 10, I have sheep that are not of this fold. God has expanded his grace, he has expanded his mercy, he has expanded his salvation beyond the bounds of just Jews. And that was always the case. That was always going to be the case. You go to the Old Testament, it was there. I, I don't believe personally, and there's a lot of different theologies, I don't believe that you and I as the church replaced Israel. I believe we've been grafted in to Israel, that we've been adopted in to the family. And you look, when you get adopted in, you get all the titles. You get all the same titles. Chloe Cordova got adopted in. She didn't replace Olivia and Gianna and Mia. She became a part of them. All the blessings that were those girls, now Chloe gets full privileges. That's you and I. 
We've been grafted in. We've been adopted in to the people of God. This, this is what Paul is saying in Ephesians 2, and it, it was overwhelming. Listen to Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 19, and, and grasp the privilege here. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, that's you and I, non-Jewish. Anyone non-Jewish would have been Gentile. Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. That's the difference between Jews and Gentiles, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at, the, at, at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Do you see who you were apart from Christ? That's who you were apart from Christ. No matter how good you were, no matter how moral you were, no matter how rich you were, no matter how well-behaved, no matter how, how much you attended church, that's how God saw you. That's who you were before Christ. And I love verse 13. But now, but now in Christ, Jesus, listen, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. No matter what you've done, no matter how you've sinned, you can be brought near to God. You can be reconciled to God alone through the blood of Jesus Christ. He will separate. If you will repent of your sins, you will declare allegiance to Christ. The Bible says in Psalm 103 to 12, he will separate your sins from you as far as the east is from the west. Isaiah 118, he, though your sins were scarlet, he will wash them white as snow. Romans 5.20, where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. In Christ Jesus. And in Christ Jesus alone, he is the cornerstone. He is the stumbling block. He is the door. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to God except through Christ. And yet, astoundingly, God has made a way for sinners to be reconciled to a holy God, and it is in Christ, that ought to overwhelm us. That identity alone ought to overwhelm us. But now in Christ, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. You don't work for your peace with God. You don't try to earn it. Christ did it. Christ is our peace. Who made both groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing, by abolishing his flesh, the enmity, which is the law of commandments containing the ordinances, so that in himself, in Christ, he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by, by, by it having put to death the enmity. Again, go to verse 18. For through Christ we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are God's household. Do you understand the, the, astounding, the astounding idea that, that you were an enemy of God? You were a hater of God. You were Ephesians 2, a child of wrath. And yet in Christ, God has invited you into his home and has adopted you. How can you do that? First, again, sacrificing his son, that whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord could be saved. God has adopted you through Christ into his family. I mean, this is, this is like a family reunion right here on Sunday mornings. This is a family gathering together 
to celebrate the awesomeness of what God is doing in our lives. Is that how we view it? I mean, Peter is making, he is going to great lengths to make sure, regardless of race, ethnicity, nationality, you're, listen, put all that aside. We, in Christ, we are a new race. We are a new people, God's own possession. And, and the privilege of that, he's saying. It's privilege. And it's from this privilege that, are, that flows the sacrifice of our lives, he talked about, that our, that our lives are to be spiritual sacrifices. It's out of, it's out of relationship. Again, God came, you see, we've been set apart primarily for a relationship. And it's out of that relationship that our service flows. We are, we are God's own possession. That, that word there means, it means to acquire, it means to purchase. It's the same word that he uses in Ephesians 1 for redemption, to pay a price. Again, you go to Acts 20, 28, it says the church which he has purchased with his own blood. You've been bought with a price, and the price of that, the price that was paid was Christ's blood. He died so that you and I could be forgiven. In Titus 2.14, it says, He gave himself in order that he might redeem, that's the word, purchase us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. All of the good deeds, all the things we do, flow out of our identity as God's people. We're God's possession. He, he chose us, he acquired us, he purchased us. Let, let that identity flow over you. You've been bought with a price. Though you were far off, you were brought near, how? By the blood of Jesus. And, and God, you see it on your handout, by his great grace, he has done what is inconceivable. In that he would bring sinners, he would form a people out of sinners. He would invite sinners to himself, inconceivable. Inconceivable. That, that, that wicked, vile sinners such as you and I, that that's who God would choose to make a people, to make a nation out of. Think about that. People who were deserving of condemnation, and yet instead, by, through Christ, he has offered salvation. And, and think about how this would have encouraged Peter's readers. I, I hope it encourages us, but think about how this would have encouraged Peter's readers. Even though they were currently experiencing humiliation, even though they were currently experiencing shame, they were seen as irrelevant nobodies. They were the dredge of society. He, Peter is saying, listen to me. You're actually royalty. In the face of all of that, you're royalty. In the face of all that, you're a child of the king. Your citizenship is in a divine kingdom. He's reminding them in the midst of, in the midst of a society that wanted nothing to do with them, that wanted to rid themselves of them, that wanted to persecute them, that was haters of them. He's saying, don't worry about it, guys, because this ain't your home. You don't belong to those people. You're God's possession. Understand the privilege of that. 
Let, let that identity flow over you. But not only, again, with identity, we've seen it, but you see in verse 9 the responsibility, the, the responsibility that we make much of God before a watching world so that He's chosen us so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. You have been saved so that you would make much of the one who saved you. Your life is to be spent making much of the one who has saved you. You see how service, your sacrificial service, your sacrificial worship, it flows out of relationship. Just like in marriage, all the things you do flow out of the relationship. You have been set apart from all others to the one true God, and out of that relationship, your life is to flow. All of our lives are to be spent to the glory of the one who has saved us, who has drawn us out of darkness into marvelous light. Do you see yourself that way? Have you experienced that grace, truly experienced that grace, that transfer, that rebirth? Not just, you've not just been in church, not just been good, not just read the Bible, not, no, no. Have you truly trusted in Christ for your salvation? It comes through none alone. I mean, it comes through none other than Jesus alone. We have been granted the privilege to be the people of God. Positional, it's done, it's sealed. And he says, live to the one who has called you. Live to the one who has adopted you. This is why we're to grow up, verse 2, into our salvation. Grow up, understanding. This is why Philippians, he says, work out your salvation. We're to take that identity and work it out in all of life. Every situation. You don't face every situation as, as, as just Chris Basham. I face every situation as a child of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. How do I give him glory in this? How do I give him glory in this? How do I give him glory in this? How do I represent him well in this? I'll, I'll give you a, a small example of, of how this can be silly. And yet it's also a picture into the wretchedness of my own heart. So I'll tell you, forgive me on the front end. I... I I, I like to do the lawn. I care about our lawn. Um, I live across the street from Anthony, who is a master lawn giver. His grass is the greenest grass in the whole world. I'm bitter about it, but I'll eventually get over it. So Karen and I show up Friday evening. We drive up. I'm like, what in the world? Our neighbor in the area between our yards has put, for his child's birthday has this humongous Water slide, inflatable. It literally goes from his house to our house. And, and unfortunately for me, just again, love your neighbor as yourself, wasn't the first thought that came to my mind. First thought that came to my mind was, that dude's going to kill my grass. There's a tropical storm coming. That, water, that grass is going to be soaked. It's going to have this thing sitting on it. He's going to pick that thing up. Who knows when? It's going to be yellow, dead, I am, I'm like, what in the world? And yet, clear as day, clear as day, the Holy Spirit said, is it really worth your grass, Chris, offending your neighbor? Is that really the conversation you want to have with your neighbor? 
I've shared the gospel with him. We, we've, we've re- Anthony and Mallory do a great job reaching out to him. Do I re- am I really going to am I really going to offend my represent my king by worried about grass? But but that's just but but again, if for me it may have been grass, for you it may be other things. It would not have represented it would not have represented my king rightly if I would have gone over there and said, "Get the thing off my lawn." That's what my flesh wanted to say. Now, it made matters worse that my kids immediately ran in and put their bathing suits on and ran and went and slide down. And I'm like, well, now the tree is poisoned. It's like, my kids are the one. I, thought he was, I felt like my kids played on so much he was going to send me a bill. But my point is, I exist to make much of my king. God, God, God moved this man and his, hu- and his wife, who I'm not sure they're saved, next door to me. And my job is to reach them with the gospel, not worry about my grass. And, and it may look different in your work. It may look different in your neighborhoods. I mean, some of you may be thinking, I wish they put something over my grass so it would hide my grass. I don't know what it looks like in your life. But you and I exist, our lives exist to make much of the one who saved us. Look, my yard is going gonna, is gonna to fade away. But here's what wouldn't fade away, the kingdom of God, the people of God. And, and my number one priority, your number one priority, is, is growing up. See, I've got to grow up to put away these fleshly things, to put away the things of this earth, and make the things of God's kingdom a priority, so that you see it on your handout, to orient. Every, no matter what I face, I am to orient my life upon God and His glory. That's what it means to work out your salvation. That my life is a spiritual sacrifice. And you know what? If it means building a relationship, and he came up the other day, and, I, I, and again, I, I was working us out all weekend. I mean, I went out, I thought I was trying to be stealth, and I went out yesterday, and I'm looking around the thing, just trying to assess, you know, okay, how bad is this? Jason, show, or his name is Matt. And I'm looking at it, he pops up, I'm like, oh man, he caught me inspecting this thing. I'm looking at it, so we had a good kind. He was so grateful. He had no place else to put the thing in his property. He was so grateful. Okay. It's not my grass anyway. Even that, orienting my life, that house is not my house. That house is an outpost for God to get glory. God is allowing me to shelter my family there as an outpost of the kingdom of God. Even that is oriented. It's my house. It's not my house. I'm a steward of that house. It's my yard. It's not even my yard. And we exist. We have been set free. You and I have been set free from the, from the power and the penalty and one day from the total presence of sin in order to serve the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. You can go to Exodus 8.1, you can go to Exodus 9.1. God tells them, set my people free, Pharaoh. Why? So that they may serve me. You and I have been set free in order to serve the one true God. Our rescue is primarily about the glory of God, primarily about Him setting us. It's not to ourselves. It is to serve Him in a way that we could not before. 
And even that is weird. Set free to be slaves to the one who set you free? Exactly. God has set you free from the slave to sin in order you would be a slave to him. But yet serving him is freedom. John 10, I have come that you would have life and have it in abundance. Where is that life found? In him was life and that life was the light of man. Life is realized in serving the one true king. And God demands that his people serve him no matter what. He demands that his people be separate. And, and again, if, if we're isolated because of that, so be it. But we, we are set in a position. We are all, listen, we gather here. This is kind of like the barracks. We come here to sharpen our weapons, to get our marching orders. We come here to get the decrees from the commanding officer. And then guess what? At 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock, we're going to send us out to outposts all over this city. You know what we're commanded with? Fight. Fight for the kingdom of God. In your neighborhood, fight for the kingdom of God. In your school, fight for the kingdom of God. At your work, fight for the kingdom of God. In your home, fight for the kingdom of God. At your place of business, fight for the kingdom of God. That's what our lives exist for. To show before a watching world what God's kingdom looks like. What he looks like as a king. And our lives, you see it on your handout, again, our lives are lived to the glory and the praise of the one who saved us through word and deed. And this is our missional duty. Our missional, missional duty. And notice I say word and deed in there. Look, nobody, no, none of us in here live good enough lives that through our behavior, your neighbor's going to say, oh, I think I'm a sinner, and that Jesus Christ came as the Lamb of God to die on a cross and take away the sins of the world. Listen, none of our lives are that good. You've got to back it up with words. Romans 10, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. You can serve your people. You can serve and be the best neighbor. You, listen, you ain't going to serve well enough for them to understand. You know what? I think Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. You, that has to be vocalized. But our lives back that up. Our lives present a framework to speak that truth. And our weirdness provides a framework. Again, that's the call for holiness. 1 Peter 1.15, be holy as your father is holy. Why do you love your wife the way you love your life? Why, why do you love your kids? Why do you, why, the why, the answer to the why is Jesus. Our lives form a context for the why. Our lives create, and our words create that hunger and that thirst. Why? Why, why, do you not, why do you not revile in return when you're reviled? Why do you not get revenge? Why do you not persecute in return? Why are your words sweet and not bitter? Why do you not malice and envy and deceit and all these things that he's talked about in 1 Peter? Why is that not a part of your life, Jesus Christ? I'm representing the character of my Father. And, and even in 1 John 3, again... Huge passage, 1 John, beautiful book. But listen to what he says in verse 3. Or start in verse, start in verse 1. 
for the context. All of it, again, all of it attached to identity. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. Again, for this reason, what reason is that? The reason that you're a child of God, your identity. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. But know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And listen to this. Everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Why? Jesus is coming back. Why do you live like that? Because my hope is fixed on another kingdom. My hope is fixed on a king who's coming back. And I'm to orient my life around that. Everyone who has this hope. It doesn't mean I'm sinless. You know what it means? It means I hate my sin. I hate it. Why? Because it doesn't represent my father. I hate it. I don't coddle it. I don't toy with it. I don't condone it. I don't excuse it. I deal with it. I hate it. Why? Because it doesn't represent my father. But but not only identity and privilege, look at number three, verse 10. You were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Our lives as believers, again, are displayed to the world the greatness of our God. Greatness. Think, Think for just a second. Try to put yourself in the place of an orphan without a family and to have a family come in and choose you. To be unwanted and have somebody yet come in and choose you. To not have a home and to have somebody come and choose you and bring you into their home. Listen, that that was us before Christ. And the things of this world and the the lies and Satan, who is the master deceiver, deceives us into not realizing that apart from Christ, listen, we're spiritual orphans. We were not God's people, and yet He has adopted us through Christ into His family. And listen, you see it on handout, it's through our allegiance to our new king, even in persecution, that we declare His awesomeness. We're a new nation, we're a new kingdom, we're a new people, and this new identity is to function and to guide in all social context. Everything is rooted in our identity. I mean, even what he gives here, starting in verse 9, but you are a chosen race. That is in contrast to what he said in verse 8 about people who were doomed to destruction. Do you see the contrast? In contrast to non-believers who, he just said in verse 8, are doomed to destruction because they have rejected Christ, you and I in Christ have, been, have become the people of God. We've been given a hope. We've been given an inheritance. We've been given an identity. Total, total contrast. Total contrast to who we were without, apart from Christ. 
Again, and this was huge. The, the main, listen, the main source of the persecution that the believers faced in Peter's day was not simply because they worshiped Jesus. They lived in a world that worshiped many, many gods. Jesus could just be one of the gods. Nobody cared about adding one more god. The issue was what got the, Christi- what got the Christians persecuted was that they worshiped Christ alone. It was the exclusivity of Christ. Listen to me. Our world does not care if we worship Jesus amongst all the other gods. Our world cares when we worship Jesus alone. Our world doesn't care if we put Jesus next to Buddha and Muhammad and all these other Allah, excuse me, and all these other gods. The world does not care. Where the world cares about it is when we say this, unless you repent and trust in Jesus Christ, you are destined for hell. That Jesus is the only way. That's the exclusion. That's what gets Christians persecuted. And if we live lives and we just line up all these gods in front of us, the world is not going to have any problem with that. If the world looks at us and sees that we've got all these different gods, they got all these. It's when we say, no, 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 we're trusting in Christ alone. Our whole allegiance is to Christ alone. Exclusivity. That's what the world hates. You can, you can live a life and you can put Christ next to all your other gods and things are going to go well in this life. Things will not go well for you at the end. Christ demands exclusive loyalty. No different than, no different than if I told Karen we got married. Karen, you can be one of my wives. What are the chances? Or Karen, you know what? I'll be, I, I, I'll give you... 360, whatever, 364 days a year, just give me one day. What are the chances? And let me ask you this, wives, husbands, if you would be demanding of such loyalty, would God not be demanding, okay to demand even greater loyalty? Exclusivity. Karen doesn't want to be one of my wives. She doesn't be one of the women in my life. She wants to be the woman in my life. God doesn't want to be one of the gods in your life. Exclusivity. And, and again, the, our society doesn't, doesn't have any problem if Jesus is just one of the gods. Our society has a problem when you say Jesus is the only real God. When he's the way, the truth, and the life. And exclusivity always has and always is the issue. Who do you say that Christ is? And in a world that's very opposed, the Bible says, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in grace. We have a resurrected king who ever lives to make intercession for us. You know what the Bible says? Be steadfast and immovable. Loyal. And it's rooted, our lives are rooted in an identity. That only comes through the gospel. Making known the grace of our God. Of rescuing sinners. Of making us a people who are not a people. And again, our lives are lived in the overflow of that. In the overflow of that. That's what he's saying in 9 and 10. The the gratitude of, of 
having been transferred from the domain of darkness into marvelous light. That's exactly what we saw in Colossians 1.13. Paul said the exact same thing. And our salvation, it's talking about salvation. Listen, we gained entrance into the people of God. We were captive. Just those, this language goes back to whether it's Exodus 19, whether it's Isaiah 43, it goes back to when Israel was, was captive in, in Egypt or when Israel was captive in Isaiah in Babylon and God rescued them, he set them free. That's the picture that Paul uses for yours and my salvation. We were rescued. We were rescued. We weren't good people. We were captive to sin. The wages of that was death. We, and from that, we were redeemed. We were ransomed. Those were pictures. Again, all of those were pictures of one day what Christ would do perfectly. Rescue us. Not from Babylon, not from Egypt, but from sin. From the domain of darkness. From bondage. And Peter's readers, they would have grasped that, and I'm trying to help you grasp that. Understand, this is where the Old Testament is so beautiful. Understand, listen, you and I, if you go to Hosea, he says, I'm, I'm going I'm to do something that's going to blow you away. I'm going I'm to do something way beyond you, and I'm going to call a people, he says in Hosea 1, 21-23. He says, I who are not my people, and I will call them my people. Understand that you and I, what Peter is saying today, you and I are fulfilled prophecy in that sense. God promised to forge a people, Hosea 1, 21 through 23, out of a people who are not his people. And that's exactly what he's done in you and I. He has formed a people who were not his people. And you and I celebrate that through not only our gatherings, but through how we lived our lives. That we celebrate that though we were alienated from God, we have been reconciled to God through Christ. God's love, His mercy, this identity is not limited to the physical people of Israel. He has chosen to make us Gentiles into that people. That ought to blow your mind. That ought to be the identity that pervades everything about your life. Do not have a small view of church. Do not have a small view of your salvation, of your identity. See see yourself as a part of the, the bigger, grander picture of what God is doing. In, in forming a people out of a people who were not his people. And in doing that, that is what he's saying. The excellencies there, the magnitude of that, the majesty of that, the awesomeness of that, for God to forgive our sin, for God to replace death with eternal life, that's the awesomeness that we're to declare. The excellencies there, the, the word means power, amazement at the power of God. You see that on your handout, that God would be seen as mighty, our lives are be to live that God would be seen as mighty. But listen, we've got to be engaged in the world, not, not in sin. Engaged in the world, to reach the world. Not, not exclusion, but engagement by being weird, by being supernatural. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, and neither are you and I. Instead, we are part of a heavenly kingdom, a heavenly people. God says, because of that, live in accordance to my commands holiness and you see it there on your handout god's people are to be an embassy of sorts a safe haven a picture of god's character 
We're his ambassadors, 2 Corinthians 5 says. We're his ambassadors. Our lives are to display his rule. Your life, listen to me, your life matters. Your role in the body of Christ is not insignificant. You, you individually and us corporately are outposts of the kingdom of God. We're about to be sent off into this world in order to display the kingdom and the character of our God. And no matter how society treats you, go back to your identity. And Peter, just for review, in chapter 2 thus far, because we're going to start getting into some heavy stuff. Some stuff that is not going to jive with your flesh. It's not going to jive with the world. And listen to me. Go back when, when you're questioning it, when you're struggling with it. The, the why is your identity. It's your identity. Peter's going to say wives eventually. We'll get there. Even if your husbands are disobedient to the word, win them over without a word by your respectful and chaste behavior. Listen to me, that's weird. It ain't going to jive with your flesh. Go back to your identity. It's going to say in verse 7, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. That's weird. I don't understand the way Karen thinks. It's weird. Live with them in an understanding way. He just said, doesn't say understand them. Live with them in an understanding way. Why? Because of my identity. He's going to say in verse 18 of chapter 2, in the same way that Christ suffered and didn't utter a word, you suffer and you don't utter a word. That's weird. You know what's rooted? Our identity. Our identity. And, and I close with a handout, just three identities to review real quick. And the, and the review as the, as the responsibility. We're children. Paul said, I mean, Peter said in verses 1 and through 3, we're children. We're to grow up into maturity. Grow up. As children, we're to grow up. In verses 4 through 8, he said we were priests. And there he says we're to offer up our lives. So as we grow up, we begin to offer up our lives. But corporately together, you and I are a nation unto God. And in that, we are to lift up our king as excellent above all else. Grow up, and as we mature, we're able to offer up. And then as we mature and offer up, we're able to lift up. All of it goes back to our identity. And listen, if you're not a believer today, the identity of, a child, of being a child of God is offered to you today through Christ. The amazement is this. Though your sins are many, they can be made white as snow through Christ. Just like that. Through repentance and faith in Christ. Through understanding the gospel, as the Bible would say, the good news of the gospel. Listen, if you are a believer, make much of Christ. Orient your lives around that identity. Make much of Christ. No matter what you do, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do it to the glory of the one who called you out of the domain of darkness into the marvelous kingdom of light.